Okay. Okay, good. <laughs> when you came in, you found a flyer on your seat. You have that flyer? I want you to open up your Bibles and put that flyer in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Today we need to have a family discussion. If you're here visiting, I'm just going to apologize. Uh, not the best Sunday to visit, really. I'm sorry if you're here and your family brought you and they're all excited. I apologize beforehand, but we need to have a family discussion. Those that call reality their home church, that call this body their family, there is some business that we need to take care of. If you're here visiting, feel free to listen. Lord, we thank you for this family. Thank you for this body. Thank you for this church home. Thank you that it's much more than four walls. It is your people called out of the world and into your heart and sent back into the world with your heart. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that, Jesus Christ, you are on a mission in these coastlands and that you have invited us into that mission as a church, as a body, and as individuals. And we're asking this morning, Lord, that you would make us of one mind in one accord with what it is you are doing. That you would give us wisdom, insight, discernment, and knowledge from above. That we would be in step with you. The Holy Spirit, we would be able to corporately discern how and where you are moving and that we would get there. And so knit us together in love, Lord. We're not asking for 100% agreement. We're asking for unity. Unity means diversity. And so we're not asking uh, for a vote or to agree. We're asking to trust you and to be in unity, bound together in love and by the Holy Spirit. I ask that you'd help me to communicate where I believe you are leading us as a church. Thank you that you are the head of the church, that you are the senior pastor, the senior leader of this church, and that we are under you. And Jesus, where you lead, we will follow. And so speak to us now. Give us vision, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you could tell, there is something astir. There is something going on. Reality has always felt called to the coastlands. We felt called to the coastlands, this stretch of coast here that we have. And, and we felt called this way before Reality Carpinteria ever started as a church. And we felt this prophetically. It seemed that the Lord was saying this to us in prayer through other people and through the word of God as we saw his face for what he wanted to do with this church and with this body. And as I've shared with you guys before, one of the passages that was pivotal for us was Isaiah 42 verses 12 and 13. It says, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. And the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. This is just one of those verses that the Lord used prophetically during the prayer meetings that we had before we ever had a service here that stirred in our hearts, that confirmed our calling to the 
coastlands. They confirmed that the Lord was a warrior who would be victorious over his enemies. We know and we understand that that passage in Isaiah had an immediate context at that time, that it meant something for Israel at that time in context. But we also believe that the Lord can use his word to speak prophetically into our particular situations at different times. It is his word and he can apply it to our lives. It does not negate the original meaning in the context, nor does it add to it. It is a personal prophecy. We don't form doctrine or theology off of these things. We allow them to be confirmation, one of many confirmations by the Holy Spirit. So those was, that was one of the passages that the Lord gave us, confirming our call to the coastland and that he would do a great work here. Now, when we say the coastlands, what's in our minds is this region where the 101 here runs along the coast. You realize it kind of comes in from uh, just coming out of the inland empire there, and, and then in Ventura, it curves to the coast, and it comes and continues along the coast up until about Gaviota, and then it heads inland again. So we're talking about Ventura, Carpinteria, Summerlin, Montecito, Santa Barbara, Goleta, and then also those regions that sort of skirt this area like Oxnard and Ojai and Camarillo. Those are included in the vision that the Lord gave us. And that's evidenced by the fact that in all these places we've got home groups and it's further evidenced by the fact that from all these places we have many, many people coming here. So Carpinteria is where God planted us, but we always felt that the reach would be further. It would be the coastlands. And so it's been since day one. What we've discovered since the first day of this church, and it's almost been five years, it'll be five years on September 7th, this coming year. What we discovered is that we are, for the most part, a commuter church. About two-thirds of the body commutes from somewhere other than Carpinteria to this church every Sunday. What that means practically is that people leave the place where they live, where their neighbors are, where their friends are, where their family may be, where their coworkers are. They leave there on Sundays and they come to church here. Now, we believe that's consistent with the anointing that God has given us. We believe that God has called Reality Carpinteria to be kind of a sending church. That people come here, they get revived for the Lord, or they get saved, they get set on fire, and they get sent back out, whether it's just their job on Monday, or uh, on a mission somewhere, or they move somewhere. We have sort of a transient population because of the colleges here. Different churches have different anointings. Some are called to reach the homeless. Some are called to mercy ministries. We seem to be anointed and called as ascending church. People come to us, the Lord does a work in them, and they go out and live as effective of Christians seems to be the primary thing that God does here. Now, being a commuter church is fine. It's not wrong for anyone to do that, but there is a certain reality that comes with that. As I said, people leaving their place of primary relationships, family, coworkers, neighbors coming to church here. One of the further realities of that is that we have an overcrowding problem here at church. It's summertime where church attendance is, is lowest. And as you can see, there's not really an empty seat. I see two in the sanctuary. And we generally, at first service, have an overflow room in the youth as well. So we have a little bit of an overcrowding problem. It's a good problem for a church to have. We're not complaining. It's a good problem, but it's a problem nonetheless. And, and what we've been asking ourselves as a staff and as leadership for some months, several months now, is how can we accommodate all those people here? 
We have a horrible parking problem. which you guys exacerbate from time to time. We have a horrible parking problem, and we are in a lease on this building for another five years. And we've invested a substantial amount of money in building out this building that was just an empty shell, a nasty old warehouse when we got here. So how are we going to accommodate all these people here? We don't have enough parking. We don't have a big enough building. We're in this building for another five years, and we've made a substantial investment. What are we going to do to fit all those people in here? So last September, really it was toward the end of August, we, we prayerfully came up with the idea that we would add a third service in the day. We at that time had a Sunday evening service, and the Sunday evening service was fun. It was a cool vibe. It was great. A lot of people came from other churches, you know, where they went in the morning, they came, and it was celebratory. It was cool. It was in Sunday evening service, but... It wasn't helping us with the overcrowding problem that we had at first and second service in the morning. And so we thought, well, if we add another service in the morning, then we can spread the crowds out and we'll have room to grow. The problem is we have these crazy long services. Our services are bare minimum two hours long. We don't want to compromise that. We, we believe that everything that we do here is valuable and that we're being obedient to it and we give the right time. I may occasionally ramble on longer than I should in the sermon. Maybe announcements go on once in a while. But generally speaking, we feel like that's who we are, a core component of who we are. And so we didn't want to shorten the services to fit more in. And if you do the math, it worked out that we could only have third service at 1.30 in the afternoon. So we started at 1.30 in the afternoon service last September thinking that that would give us room to grow, that it would alleviate some of the problems, that new people would go there or people in these services would begin to go there and that would help us to grow. Bottom line, it's not working. A third service at 1.30, which other churches have 1.30 services, work in other locations. A friend of mine pastors a huge church down in L.A. Uh, in Montebello. And their 1.30 service is their biggest service. They have several on Sunday. 1.30 is their most popular. And that, that, that helped influence us. Maybe 1.30 will work. I don't know why it doesn't work here. Maybe it's the fact that the beach is one block away right there. <laughs> I don't know what the situation is. People are coming. At third service, there's about 100 to 150 people. But at first and second service, there's over 600 people every single Sunday. So it's not helping with the overcrowding problem. We continue to have overcrowding, first and second service. We've had to turn away kids, turn away parents, tell them you can't check in your kids. The classrooms are full. Because of the fire marshal and the realities there, we can't have you sitting out in the hallway. We've sent people home Sunday morning, first and second. Sorry, you can't come to church. We don't love doing that. And we give them flyers, come back to third. Third is cool. There's like 400 open seats. And, you know, you can come back. And it just doesn't seem to be meeting the need. It didn't help with the overcrowding problem in the morning. So after today, we're canceling third. Today will be our last third service, at least at that time slot, for a while. So we had to begin to think more. How are we going to solve this overcrowding problem? It's just getting worse and worse. Third service isn't doing it. So we started to look for new buildings. 
we had an opportunity to get out of this lease. We thought, well, we'll get out of this lease. I know we built it out for about a million bucks. We're just going to have to leave that behind. And we started looking at new buildings and just came up dead ends. We started looking at property in carpentry in the surrounding areas to buy property and begin to build and, and all these other things. And we prayed and we looked and we looked and we just came to dead ends. It was at that point where we pressed into prayer a little bit more. And it turns out that what we thought was an overcrowding problem was actually an opportunity. What seemed to be a problem was an opportunity. The overcrowding was the Lord's way of showing us how to fulfill his vision for reality in the coastlands. The problem as we prayed became the opportunity to fulfill the Lord's vision for reality in the coastlands. So the Lord got us thinking differently as we pressed in in prayer. Realizing that we have a commuter church, we were trying to accommodate everybody here. Then it dawned on us, don't make the people come to this church, take the church to them. Don't make them come here, go to where they are. Now, we have been given another prophetic word in a few prayer meetings, the first time on August 31st, 2004. During an intense and focused prayer time, we were given this prophetic word, again from Isaiah, Isaiah 54, verses 2 through 3. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your descendants will possess nations and they will resettle the desolate cities. And when we got that, we weren't exactly sure what it meant. We just kind of tucked it away. I wrote in my Bible, you know, who gave us that prophetic word and the date and the time and the occasion and all that stuff. And we just took it away. And then the Lord began stirring in our hearts that word again, that we would spread to the right and to the left, that we would enlarge the place of the tent. So this is what we are doing. We are going to have the tent, so to speak, in multiple places. We are going to a multi-site format here on the coastland. What we're going to be doing is starting Reality Ventura. I am so relieved that you feel that way about it. Now, realize this. Reality Ventura is not meant to be a solution to the overcrowding problem. Okay, that's not what it is. The overcrowding problem was merely the, merely the impetus or the occasion that got us thinking and praying outside the box. Before that, we were in a box. It's got to be in this building. It's got to fit here. It's at least got to be in carpentry. How are we going to do it? Okay, so it's not a solution for overcrowding. That was merely the impetus that got us thinking and praying. The truth is God has given us a passion for that city. God has given us a passion for the city. It fits within the calling of the coastlands, and we have hundreds of people that call Ventura home, that also call this church home, that are on fire for their city. We just didn't understand how God would fulfill that vision. Now we're beginning to see it. It's becoming obvious to us. 
Reality is a network of churches. You know that. We have Carpinteria, we have Los Angeles, we have Stockton, we have London. By the way, uh, the couple that's going to London will be here next Sunday. We'll get to see them and touch them and love them. San Francisco coming later on. So reality is already a network of churches. Now we're going to have reality coastlands. And reality coastlands will be a network of local churches. Carpinteria, Ventura, and more. (laughs) Each of these churches will be its own church. Each of them will do what a church does, but they will be connected through the teaching. Each will be its own church, but they will be connected through the teaching. Let me give you the theological basis for this. We do see a model in the New Testament of churches connected by teaching. Some of the New Testament epistles were written to networks of churches in cities and or regions. An example of that is Peter writing to certain churches in 1 Peter 1.1 where he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. So Peter was writing to, was instructing, was teaching a network of churches scattered throughout cities and regions. Paul had the same sort of ministry. We see that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches in Galatia. Notice, churches in Galatia. Galatia was a region in Central Asia Minor. And in this region, there were multiple churches that Paul instructed. There was a network of churches, each having their own leadership of elders, their own leadership of elders, but they were under the influence and the instruction of Paul in his teaching. We see this also displayed in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul wrote, When this letter is read among you to the Colossians, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So there was this apostolic instruction that was happening that was distributed throughout the churches. They were local, they were autonomous, they had their own eldership that led the church, but there was a knitting together through doctrinal instruction. The New Testament gives us an example, therefore, of leadership that is both local and not. Leadership in the church that is both local and not local. It was a practice of Paul in the early church to establish elders at each local congregation. By the way, the elders are, according to the New Testament, the ones that lead the church. And in the New Testament, the term elder and pastor is used synonymous. They have the same job description. So the leadership of the church, according to my understanding of the New Testament, is to be a plurality of elders, multiple elders or pastors that lead the church. And then what we have within that structure of elders is first among equals, a man in the midst of that elders that that becomes sort of the lead elder. He's not above, therefore we don't call him a senior leader or a senior pastor, but a lead elder or a lead pastor. But the ruling is done through a plurality of eldership. 
It's not the Moses model. It's not the senior pastor model. We believe that the biblical model is plurality of eldership and the elders or the pastors are to lead and to rule in the church. That's our understanding of the New Testament. It's clear that elders were to lead the church from Acts 20, 1 Timothy 3, and 1 Peter 5. Each church in the New Testament was autonomous, but there was also teaching and influence that was not local, but it was authoritative in the church. We see an example of this in 1 Corinthians 5, if you'll look there. 1 Corinthians 5, before we get to chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 5. Here we see an example of teaching that was not local, but it was authoritative, coming from Paul to the churches in Corinth. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver a, such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ is our Passover and has also been sacrificed. Notice... There was a problem in the church. There was leadership in the church. They were going to be expected to handle it, but Paul was instructing. And though he was absent in body, he was using the technology of his day to instruct the church. Though he was absent in body, he was using the technology of his day, which was writing and sending letters and through this, he increased the reach and the effectiveness of his teaching ministry to the building up of the church and the glory of Jesus Christ. So Paul was exercising leadership from a distance through teaching. It didn't mean that there wasn't local leadership or local teaching. There was. For example, when Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So we see here that Paul's teaching ministry was exercised in networks of churches, but the local leadership would still engage in teaching and preaching in discipline and discipleship. Paul was instructing from afar, but there was leadership, and they were also expected to teach and preach, exercise church discipline, and to disciple people. And that'll be the situation with our multi-site campuses here on the coastline. We'll be connected through the teaching. We'll share that doctrinal foundation. We'll be receiving the same prophetic word on Sundays from the Lord, but each campus will have a campus pastor and pastors. 
and there will be other teaching and preaching taking place. They will exercise church discipline. They will administer the sacraments or the ordinances of the church, which we recognize to be baptism and the Lord's Supper, and there will be discipleship taking place. Everything that a church does will be happening there. We will be using the technology of our day to increase the influence of the calling that God has put on us in the coastline. The technology of our day is not writing letters. <laughs> what Paul did was he provided air support in the writing of his letters so that the ground war could go forward. You see, the doctrinal instruction is the air support. The ground war is the discipleship, the discipline, the instruction, the relationships, the leadership, the ministry. Paul provided air support so that the ground war could go forward. And so Reality Carpinteria then, as part of Reality Coastlands, will be providing air support from here so that the ground war can go forward in Ventura. There was something that happened in the churches in America early on um, at the beginning of the 19th century. There was someone named Francis Asbury. And he saw the father of American Methodism. John Wesley established uh, the Methodist movement over in England. And he sent Francis Asbury to America in the late 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. And what he did was traveled a quarter of a million miles on horseback and preached 16,000 sermons. What he would do is he would travel to a location, he would establish a church, and he would establish leadership, campus pastor and pastors, so to speak, and then he would continue on, he would establish more churches and leadership, a plurality of eldership, campus pastor and pastor, so to speak, and then he would continue on the circuit with authoritative teaching amongst all of those churches, but there was still teaching, preaching, discipleship, and discipline that was taking place at those local congregations. Now, the problem with that methodology is that he died and men of his sort died in their early 30s because they were always out in inclement weather and adverse conditions, riding around on horses, preaching from place to place. It was a difficult life, and what it cost was very effective leaders early on in their life. With technology, we can do the same thing without killing our leaders, <laughs> which I'm personally excited about. <laughs> so we, like the Apostle Paul, and like Francis Asbury of American Methodism, will be using the technology of our day. We'll be using video projection streamed live via the internet or satellite to these other campuses. So the message that's happening here will be happening almost simultaneously in Ventura. It'll be streamed down there. We'll be knit together with that teaching. Concerning the use of the technology of the day, I want you to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter 9. We'll start in verse 19. Paul is talking about his strategy for ministry here. Incredibly important passage. 1 Corinthians 9, starting verse 19. He says, For though I am free of all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. 
And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. And to those who are under the law, under the law, that I might myself be under, not, oh, excuse me, though not myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. Here's the crux of it. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Notice what he says. By all means I intend to see people saved. And I do it all. The air conditioner just came on. Praise the Lord. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel. So whatever means were available to Paul for the furtherance of the gospel, he used. Whatever means were available for the furtherance of the gospel. He sailed ships. He walked on roads. He wrote letters. He made tents. He had people circumcised when it was good for the furtherance of the gospel. He told them not to get circumcised when it was good for the furtherance of the gospel. Whatever lent itself to the furtherance of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ in the moment was used by Paul by all means he intended to save. Now, the church has endeavored to do this effectively throughout history. In the 15th century, Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press. The invention of the printing press was extremely important in the Reformation. It changed everything when all of a sudden you could have materials printed. You could have Bibles printed. You could have tracts printed. You could have theological books printed, different instructions, different treatises. All these things could be printed and widely distributed for the first time in history, and it changed everything. And the church took advantage of it, and it was a revolution, in fact, a reformation in the church. The church was apt, the church was prone, the church was keen enough to lay hold of the technology available to further the reach for correct doctrine and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice, when this new technology was employed, the gospel didn't change. The message didn't change but the method and the ability to communicate did. In fact, because of this new technology, there was an ability to correct Catholic distortions of the gospel that they weren't able to correct on a wide basis before. So this technology lent itself to the furtherance of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. Then around 1540, it was the printing of an English Bible called the Great Bible that allowed the Reformation to really happen in England. Someone named Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, got the Great Bible printed, and with the help of uh, King Henry VIII, had it placed in every church in England. It was supposed to be placed in a central location and chained there, sometimes, sometimes called the Chained Bible because of that, chained there so that nobody could take it because Bibles, people just didn't have in them, but everybody could come and read what the scripture said. And because of that, reformation took root. And people moved out of religion and out of bondage and out of a sacramental view of Christianity into the freedom of the gospel, sola fide, salvation by faith alone and grace. And they were able to stand upon the authority of the word for the first time in a long time because they had the word. 
But you see, if somebody hadn't laid hold of the technology, we would have had a stagnation at that time instead of a reformation. George Whitfield, in his time, he preached 18,000 sermons to 10 million people. This was before any amplification. We're told that he would go into open fields and preach to as many as 30,000 people at one time. Those are the upper estimates, but that's what we're told. Without amplification, in open fields, preaching to thousands of people, when he was done, he would walk off the platform and he would cough and spit up blood for hours because his vocal cords were so destroyed by preaching to 10 million people over time. Billy Graham spoke to live 210 million people. 210 million people. That's live. That doesn't count TV, radio, internet, any of those things. Live, he spoke to 210 million people. What was the difference between 10 million for George Whitfield and 210 million plus, plus, plus for Billy Graham? Technology and the willingness to use it. Technology and innovation. Christians using new methods to convey the same message. New methods, same message. Billy Graham said, I, I want to preach the gospel to everyone God will allow me to preach to. So we're going to use microphones. We're going to use amplifiers. We're going to use speakers. We're going to use stadiums, loudspeakers, everything, screens and video, everything they could get their hands on. And it made the difference of 200 million more people. And Billy Graham is still alive. He's lived a long time. It didn't take such a toll on his health. Billy Graham was willing to use all means that he might save some. Concerning Christians using technology and innovation, in the late 19th and the early 20th century, radio came on the scene. And Christians were pretty quick to take advantage of a new means of communication to spread the same wonderful old message. But everything changed when radio came on the scene. Everything changed. Now we had radio preachers that were doing it live. Now we had sermons rebroadcast. And we had all these things going on. Understand, as you might expect, not everybody in Christendom was favorable to the change. In 1923, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, better known as Biola University, Biola University started their own radio station with the intent of broadcasting the gospel to as many as they could. And a man named T.C. Horton was the founder of Biola, and another man whose name you probably know, R.A. Torrey, excellent writer of theological books. I have a bunch of his books. R.A. Torrey was the dean of the school at the time. And they were opposed to Christians using radio because they thought the airwaves were the realm of Satan because the Bible calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. These were incredibly intelligent men, incredibly learned, incredibly love the Lord, spiritual, spirit-filled men but they weren't able to get beyond the new technology. It so offended their senses. We've never done that before. The church has never done that before. If it's new, it can't be good. If it's new, it's got to be from the devil or at least from the flesh. And that was some of the initial reaction. The first film projector was invented by a Christian. Anybody know his name? Thomas Edison. 
He invented the first film projector. He was a Christian. He patented the invention, and then he gave the patent to his church, and they rejected it. Didn't think it could be of the Lord, nor any good in the church. Wow. Film projector, they probably could have used that. They rejected the patent. They rejected the technology. In the late 19th century, the first movie was released, and in the early 20th century, the first movie theaters were built in America. Did you know that seven of the first 10 films ever made for the screen had the word passion in the title because seven of the 10 first films ever made were about the life of Jesus Christ. What we see is at that pivotal moment in history, the church was willing to lay hold of new technology and a new means to communicate the same old wonderful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brand new means and method, same old message. Did you know that the number one viewed film in the history of the world is Jesus of Nazareth by Campus Crusade? It's the most viewed film in the history of the world. Now, can you imagine if those who resisted that technology had won the day? If they had won the day, if they were the prevailing voice and said, look, that's new. We can't do it that way. We've never done it that way. We've never made movies about Jesus. What are you, nuts? Can you imagine if they had prevailed that untold millions that have heard the gospel through those films would not have heard the gospel? Did you know that today in America, there are more screens in churches than there are at every movie theater in America? That's weird, right? There are more large screens in churches than there are at every movie theater in America. What we begin to understand is that we are a culture that is radically screen-oriented. Screen-oriented. Look, you're looking at it right now. See? Gotcha. <laughs> Prove my point. You weren't looking at me. You were looking at the screen. From television to film to internet, screens and, screens and videos are the most pervasive form of communication right now. So our intention is that just as Paul used the technology of his day, written letters to minister the truth of God's word to networks of churches, we are endeavoring to do the same through video, internet, satellites, and screens. And here's what we believe. We believe it's a God thing. We believe it's something that God is doing right now. We're certainly not the first to do this. There are many models of churches that have gone multi-site, and some of them are wonderful, and they're flourishing, and there's growth. More people are getting the gospel. More people are getting saved. More people are getting instructed than if they hadn't laid hold of that model. So we believe that it's something that God is doing at this time, and we believe that God is leading us as a church to do this, a new method to communicate the same message. And we believe that in doing this, we are being obedient our goal is not to be innovative. Our goal is to be obedient. So what is the difference between a reality uh, campus and a reality church plant? What's the difference between a reality campus and a reality church plant? Well, the men and women that we've laid our hands on to go plant churches were men and women that were called to that region. When we laid our hands on Tim Chaddock and his wife Lindsay to go out to L.A., they were called to L.A., and they're looking at how can they be obedient in reaching L.A.? 
For Josh and Andrea Kaler and the team that went with them, they were called to Stockton, and they're praying about how can they be obedient to reach the city of Stockton, and they're also looking at multi-site sorts of, sort of models. Uh, uh, Mark and his sweet wife Lizzie that are going to be here next week that are going to London. They're called the region to London. How can they be obedient? Dave and Ashley that are going to San Francisco, how could they be obedient? How can we be obedient in reaching our area? You see, they were anointed for that area. We are called and anointed for this area. So they're not going to have screens with our sermons on it. That's where they're called to. They're going to have the prophetic word for that place. They're going to teach and preach there. We are called here to the coastline. So there are church plants that come from reality. We like to call them church births because they're more involved in planting. There's church birthing, and then there will be multiple sites, and there's a difference, and reality feels called to both. We consider furthermore, here's the difference, LA, Stockton, and the other church plants that will happen to be new bodies where Christ is the head over that body. But the way we see Ventura is as an extension of this body. Though it will have its own leadership and eldership and pastors, it is nonetheless an extension of this body and Christ would be the head over reality coastlines and we would work together under that. That is why the message will be shared is because we feel called to the coastlines. Again, the teaching and preaching from the pulpit on Sunday morning is the air assault so that the ground war, teaching, discipleship, discipline, home groups, counseling, ministries, baptizing, communion, so on and so forth can go on in those places. They'll be doing everything that a church does. Therefore, they will be a church. It'll be this church in multiple locations. The benefits, and here's where we end. Three benefits. Number one, evangelism increases. Evangelism increases. Look, there's just a reality to living 20 or 30 minutes away from your church. It's just hard to invite people. And we do believe that the church is God's chosen vehicle for salvation in the world. Not that salvation comes from the church, but we communicate the way by which men and women are saved, Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Jesus established the church. We love parachurch organizations. We support them. We support Campus Crusade. We support Young Life. We can support uh, Christian surfers and surfers with a mission and YWAM and all these other things. But the only thing Jesus ever established was the church. When he wanted to get the message out and for it to go forth to the nations, he established the church. So we believe that the church is very important. And we believe that it's totally valid for people to invite others into the church to hear about Jesus Christ. And the effectiveness or the capability or the probability of that decreases significantly when you're going to a commuter church and you're driving 20 to 30 minutes away. So what we believe is it's going to increase evangelism. No longer are people driving past their primary relationships, but they're worshiping Jesus in the midst of them. And so we think that the invitation factor will go way up. And we also think that the relational factor goes way up. So evangelism increases. Secondly, we reach more people in more places. It's very simple. We reach more, places, more people in more places. Not because we have a desire to be big, but because we have a desire to see more people saved. And we have a desire to obey in the Great Commission. 
And so through this, we will reach more people in more places, which translates simply to being obedient to God's call for us on the coastlines. The spreading to the right and to the left, as Isaiah 54 says. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. It was supposed to go forth in concentric circles to the outermost parts of the earth. So for us in our little world, Carpinteria is a Jerusalem. We can consider Ventura as Judea. And who knows where Samaria will be. But we begin to press outward to be obedient in reaching as many people as we can with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And live video feeds and screens and all the assorted gear make it possible just as roads and ships and letter writings and deliverings made it possible for Paul to reach as many as he could by all means. You know, in this room, we can reach 600 people a service. Unless we have people sitting on the carpets and the couches, which we do sometimes. And what we use here is a microphone. We use amplifiers to amplify the sound, and we use uh, loudspeakers. What that does as a church is that puts us on the cutting edge of the late 1800s to the mid-1900s. No new technology there. Reaching 600 people with a loudspeaker. Wow. We're on the cutting edge of the late 1800s. At the same time, we are on the radio around the world and we reach hundreds and thousands of people through the radio. Our messages go out on the radio. That puts us on the cutting edge of the early 1900s. A little less than 100 years ago. We're on the cutting edge as a church of that time. In the same way, thousands of people download our messages via the internet. We preach it here Sunday morning. It goes up on the internet uh, Sunday afternoon, and through the week, thousands of people are downloading, listening, or watching on iTunes or whatever. That puts us on the cutting edge of the late 1900s, 1994 to be exact. Cutting edge of 1994. It's almost been 15 years since then. The question becomes for the church, the church, what time period will we be on the cutting edge of? Not because technology is cool, but because historically speaking, technology has been used by God. And when the church laid hold of new technology, rather than ignoring it and turning it over to the minions, when they laid hold of it, it was effective. From the printing press, to loudspeakers, to radio, to the big screen, when the church laid hold, the gospel went forth. Again, we don't want to be relevant. We want to be obedient, understanding that the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And why should we just leave the airwaves to those who make pornography? They're doing it best. The church should do it better. We should be using it to the glory of Jesus Christ. By all means. Every opportunity available to us for which we have permission from God, we should use to get the gospel out. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save, none, save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel that by all means I might save some. So all things to all people, all means means that we consider new opportunities. We do it for the sake of the gospel. All means can, means that we are interested in being biblical and not traditional. It means that we are flexible with methodology, but precise with theology. Flexible with methodology, all means, but precise with theology for the sake of the gospel. What we believe, 
unchanging. How we communicate, changing all the time. That was a protocol of the church from day one. When the church became a church, they realized, oh, we don't sacrifice anymore. So temple services don't mean that much to us. What are we going to do? We don't, we, we don't really have any buildings. Look, guys, let's just gather in the temple for now. This is Acts 2.42. Let's just gather in the temple for now, and we'll meet and we'll talk together about what Yeshua taught us, and then we'll break up into homes, and we'll get into each other's lives and relationships. Whatever means they could lay hold of at the time. And then when persecution increased, they went underground. Okay, here's the deal. We're being persecuted. People want to kill us, so they went underground. And then when Christianity was legitimized under the Roman Emperor Constantine, they were able to come above ground and they began getting buildings and buying land and building big buildings so that they could meet together. Whatever means, whatever technology, whatever opportunities were afforded to them, it was the same message, new methods. And at this technological moment in the world, the church cannot be left behind. The perverts are doing it so well. The church needs to be on the cutting edge. And the last point, the benefits, number one, evangelism increases. Number two, we reach more people in more places. Number three, people are going to be better cared for. Very simply, people are going to be better cared for. With doing campuses, you get all the relational benefits of a smaller church. Access to key leadership, being known, knowing others, less cracks to fall through, greater accountability, all the relational benefits of a small church, but all the organizational benefits of a large church, meaning individuals that are gifted and specialized. A small church just can't afford to hire them. They just can't hire specialized people. They can't have a person that just does media or just does home groups or just does this and that and the other. Like few people have to do it all. So by being knit together through campuses, you get the relational benefits of a small church, the organizational benefits of a large church, specialized personnel, numerous and very varied servants, finances, technology, tools, buses, camps, and a good reputation. There's a good reputation for this church to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so oftentimes what we find is when you invite people, oh yeah, I've heard about that. Or I heard what God is doing, or I saw the bumper sticker, or I saw the newspaper article, or I saw this and that. And we just believe that now there's a great opportunity for them to come. And so we believe that it is a God-honoring sharing of resources to be more effective, to fulfill his call on us to reach the coastlands. What happens now? We pray. The staff has already been praying for over two months. We've been praying for several months took God a while to get us outside of the box, quite frankly. <laughs> took him a while to get us outside the box. But it's been two months now since the staff knew the Lord was leading us to do this, and we've been praying. We will pray weekly for at least another three months. This is not starting any time before October, Lord willing, and possibly as late as January. Before this church started, once we knew we were going to do it, we had five months of weekly prayer meetings. There was a lot of prayer long before that, but once we knew this is what, this is where, this is how, we prayed for five months. Reality Los Angeles, we had about nine months of weekly prayer meetings. Reality Stockton, we had over a year of weekly prayer meetings. And there's weekly prayer meetings going on for London for a long time now, and there's weekly prayer meetings starting for San Francisco. That's the way that we do it. 
So before we ever have a service, there will be at least five months of prayer. And it starts this Thursday night. There's where that flyer comes in that you got on your seat when you came in. Thursday night services were going to be previously here at Reality Carpentry, and we're going to do what we did every other summer. We're going to come at 6 o'clock. We're going to have a meal together. We're going to fellowship. Hooray, hurrah. Teaching and worship, we're scrapping that because we believe that there's a more important, potent, urgent call to prayer. So Thursday nights are going to be in Ventura at the building we're looking at. We'll be meeting at 7.30. The address is there. There's a map there. We'll be meeting to pray for the city of Ventura. If your hope for the summer was to get more food, spiritual and physical, more pouring in, you know what? You guys are chubby enough. It's time to get out and do something. Those of you that don't live in Ventura, don't even want to hear it. Get your butts down there. They've been driving up for years. If we're going to do this, we're going to do this as a church. We're going to do it together as a church. So we're going to meet this Thursday night, 730. We'll have some coffee. We'll have some desserts. I don't know why. Just because when Christians get together, they eat. There's got to be some sort of food. And we're going to pray. And it's going to be juicy prayer. We're going to get in there. We're going to call upon the Lord for the city of Ventura. We don't have this building yet. We're in negotiation with the landlord, and he's letting us meet in there on Thursday nights to pray. He's not a Christian. He's going to get saved. Here's what I mean about a good reputation. When we approached him and he began to ask us questions, we said, well, we're this church in Carpentry. We're called Reality. And he goes, what are you called? Reality. That's what that is. All my neighbors have the bumper stickers. And people are always inviting me. He said this. They've been inviting me to reality. I didn't get it. Now I see this is awesome. I'm going to come. That's what he said. Because there's a good reputation. So we're going to meet in this building. And uh, the Lord's allowing us to do that. So we're going to pray. And then the last thing I'll say is this. You guys need to pray. Where would God have you be? Either location is fine. I don't care where you live. I don't care if you live a block from that church and you still feel called to come to Carpinteria. We will love you no matter where you go. We will love you no matter where you go. And you will never hear, mark this, staff, listen to me, you will never hear any leadership in this church or a member of the staff say, what are you doing here? You live in Ventura. You should be in Ventura. We're not going to do that. Why? We believe that where a person goes to church should be decided by Jesus Christ. We really believe that. We know he's leading us to do this, but whether you're going to be there or here or somewhere else, God bless you. But you need to hear from God. You need to hear from the Lord. It's going to be a different flavor down there. It's going to be an outreach-oriented church. They're going to have some different focuses, some different things that drive them. So you need to pray and ask the Lord, where will you be most fruitful and effective? And you have at least three months to pray and make an obedient decision. Amen? You guys cool? All right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us vision. Lord, thank you. Thank you for leading us. And we confess together that uh, we're nervous, Lord, 
because it's new ground for us. It's scary. We've never done this, but we desperately want to obey you. And again, Lord, we're just asking that you make us of one mind and one accord, and we have a passion for that city. We have a desire to see it reach. Lord, we thank you for the churches that are there, and we bless them. We bless them, Lord. We thank you for what you're already doing there. We don't think that reality is a solution. Jesus, you are the solution. But we do believe there's room because there's more people that need to get saved. Tens of thousands of people that need to get saved. So we're asking that you would create a safe house down there. A house of salvation, Lord. We're asking that you would call men and women to be a part of this work. We're asking that you would impart new gifts, empowering from the Holy Spirit to reach that place, Lord. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for making a lamp unto our feet. We don't see everything clearly yet. We confess we've never done this before and we don't know all the details. But we're trusting you and we commit to seeking you in prayer. Lord, would you raise up a great mighty, uh, mighty uh, band of prayer warriors here, Lord? Would you call forth men and women with a passion to pray that would give up Thursday nights this summer and go down there and labor for the welfare of those people in Ventura, for their eternal salvation? Give us vision for that, Lord. Move us out of apathy and into intercession. Thank you that we've been saved and forgiven and it's done so that we can go now intercede for others. Bring us out of infanthood and into spiritual maturity. Teach us of that sweet agony of victory where we labor on behalf of those that we don't even know and do a great work in which you'd be glorified, Lord. We worship you now, Jesus. Ask that you would be enthroned. <laughs>